Hi, this is Casey, and this is episode 18 of the Parent Teacher Podcast. This is what I've put together to get information out to parents, teachers, related service providers, anyone that wants to help kids become happy, independent adults. I've been a teacher and I worked in teacher preparation, and now I work directly for students and their families as an advocate. My specialty is in ADHD, behavior, executive functioning, so a lot of my students are considered twice exceptional, and I started this show to talk about topics we all may benefit from knowing more about. You can contact me with suggestions or questions and read more on my website, www.reorientedadvocacy.com. This week, I had questions about assistive technology. How do we determine which tools might be helpful for a student? So I'm talking to Dan Cochran, a professor with the assistive technology program here at the University of Illinois in Chicago. In a lot of meetings, I start to ask questions about assistive technology, and I wasn't sure if there was a, a standard assessment or a process in place, and if it varied from district to district. A lot of the students I work with don't need the communication devices, and when I was preparing special education teachers, normally when we talked about assistive tech, we were really covering a lot with communication devices. And so I reached out to Dan, who is a RESNA certified assistive tech professional, and he's a clinical instructor in the assistive tech certificate program at University of Illinois at Chicago. Um, he's a former special educator. Dan worked for 20 over 20 years in a suburban Chicago unit school district. First, he was a special ed resource teacher and inclusion facilitator, and for the last 13 years as a district-wide assistive technology specialist coordinator. Dan has a master's in teaching special education, an MS in disability and human development, and recently started in the PhD program in disability studies at UIC. Dan presents on AT topics at several national AT conferences and is a member of the Rehabilitation Engineering and Assistive Technology Society of North America, or Resna, am I? Resna, yeah. Okay, and is currently serving on its board of directors. So um, thank you, Dan, for coming today. Um, again, what really uh, prompted me to contact you was sitting in a recent meeting and the box on the IEP came up and I thought there has to be more to this. There just has to be. So what led you to um, learning about assistive technology? Well, I kind of fell into assistive technology like a lot of people. Um, it just, I was the teacher who did a lot of tech with their kids. And then I ended up being asked to be on the AT team. This was years ago now, like um, 15 or so. And um, so I went from there to uh, being asked to be the AT coordinator for the district. And at that point, I figured I need to get some training. So that's actually the point that I went and did a lot of the training and the um, professional credentialing that I have. I am a tech person as well. I love it. I call Google my external brain. I use it to organize things. I love the fact that I don't actually have to place things into files, that there's search functions and tags and all of these shortcuts, because I always uh, joke about the irony of me teaching people organization and time management because it's not something that comes naturally to me. So something that I had asked you about specifically was how can this help, you know, kids who are in um, inclusion settings or in general ed classrooms? Um, and often what I'm hearing from the teams is 
Um, well, that technology is available for everyone. That technology, you know, we have Google Read and Write. We, um, we can access books on tape. Like, it's already available. Um, I think we still say books on tape. <laughs> yes, sometimes. Which is interesting. <laughs> and so I know I had kind of put you um, on the spot asking specifically about executive functioning issues. But just broadly, you started to describe to me this problem-solving process about talking about the task and how it really doesn't matter what disability we're addressing. It really isn't. It is student-specific, but can you talk a little more about the process? Yeah, that's what I'm most interested in. I want to back up a second, though, and say that the um, response you're getting, that um, the technologies out there, is a good response in a way. That's universal design for learning. That's designed for all. So they're saying we have this stuff available, which is great. What I'm interested in is the decision-making process that goes into that little checkbox on the IEP. Um, and I jokingly say that I basically teach a whole 15-week class, um, three-credit <laughs> class, uh, graduate class, on how to actually make a decision um, with that little checkbox. Do we decide yes or no? Um, and then in Illinois, where we are currently, um, there is an additional requirement that came out about a year and a half ago that requires teams to explain why they're saying no if they say no um, to that checkbox. They, they want us to explain something because I think the default mode for people is to check no. And um, really, I'm empathetic in a sense. What they're saying when they check no is we really just don't know the answer. And so we're just going to put no there. And what I think we need to do is help people understand that there is a decision-making process that can go behind that yes-no checkbox, but it's fairly involved. It's going to take some work. It's going to take some thinking. Well, and I think, you know, just like I have really invested in, I use a lot of Google tools. So I have really invested in um, learning about the, the kind of hidden ways that they can be used and digging deeper. And definitely um, staff expertise is going to vary um, from one teacher to another, depending on how familiar they are with technology, how much they integrate it in the classroom. So I kind of like the idea that they're marking no to because maybe they are acknowledging there's universal design and they can, you know, write it into accommodations generally um, instead or something. But, but then the problem is assistive technology is a service as mm -hmm. part of the IEP. And so our obligation as an IEP team is to figure out the um, design for you, right? So universal design, design for all, assistive technology designed for you. And we, I mean, it's individualized education program. We're trying to individualize. And in the law, assistive technology is not just the device. It's not just we have the tool, which is great. Uh, it's the service that goes with it. And that part of the law is actually much more explained than the device itself. Um, because that's the part that takes some work. That's the, like, I'm going to figure this out with you. So the big question is, like, how do we make that decision? I think that's what I'm interested in eventually researching um, as well. Because there are models out there. Um, the SEP framework is the one predominantly used in K-12 around the country. But in my opinion, it's still too loose. It's not enough of a step-by-step -step process, and people sometimes call it a process, and it's a misnomer, it's a framework, I would say it's the ingredients, it's not the recipe. And so when you just give people a bunch of ingredients, you know, yeah. you could make anything with this right. set of ingredients. What do we actually, how do we make the specific thing we're trying to make? 
So what will you tell, because there's so many acronyms, do you know what SET, I don't mean to put you on the spot. No, no, I'm sorry. Yes, I, I forget these all the time too. So what so is SET? So SET is an acronym for Student Environment Task Tool. Got it. So and that's And it's very similar word. to another system framework called the HAT model, which is H-A-A-T, so human activity, assistive technology, and then it's all in a context. So we've got student and human. Mm-hmm. We've got the environment and the context. Those are the uh, same word, basically. Mm -hmm. And then we have the task or the activity. And occupational therapists would think of activity as a bigger thing, like occupation, activity, and then task. And then we have the tool or the AT. Um, But again, those are, to me, it's a system model. It's saying these are the ingredients we need to think about. Right. But my question is, how do we walk through the decision-making process. Right. And to kind of draw a parallel, because I, I think of, you know, analogies, it's almost like we're talking about the common core or we're talking about, you know, a content framework mm-hmm. without talking about that individualized piece that's required in the IEP. And the IEP requires direct services or individualized, you know, teaching, yeah. basically well, instruction. The, the set framework is supposed to be a team discussion. So that's mm-hmm. where the individualization comes in. It is individualized to that student, but um, what I'm trying to say is it, it's still kind of an open-ended, here's the things you should discuss, mm-hmm. but it's not leading you through it. Okay. So what I hang my hat on in terms of a process is the problem-solving process, the problem-solving process that we all know. And I started this um, back when I was years ago, first became the AT coordinator for the district. and wanted to have a way to convey to all the staff in the district, this is how we do assistive technology decision-making. And at the time, response to intervention was coming in. It was the big thing, um, RTI for short, and now called MTSS, uh, multiple tiers of support. So within that system, um, besides the triangle that represents the tiers of intervention, there was the use of the problem-solving, the generic problem-solving cycle, right? What's the problem? Let's analyze the problem. Let's find a solution. Let's try the solution and let's get data on did it work or not. Mm-hmm. That's what you're supposed to go through, you know, that cycle with problem solving for students. And that's outside of the IEP system. So what I did was take that problem solving cycle and hook into it the points, the decision making points of where we need to, where, where assistive technology would come into play. Okay. And it's even interesting to me that you bring up the word data related to assistive technology, just because it's not something I commonly see, you know, and for really like to, to kind of share with people, um, like a non-example of a problem solving process and services, um, involved with, um, you know, assistive tech going to a, uh, communication device. Um, when I was a teacher, there were times when it was like, this device is assigned to the student and it wasn't clear, like who was going to follow up how often, how it was going to be measured, this piece was really lacking. And so you'd see a lot of devices that people just write off. It doesn't work. They don't use it. Uh-huh. They're not working. You know, they don't like it. They don't use it. We're not going to write it in anymore. So, And, and, and one of the, the powerful things about the problem-solving cycle is that when you run into that situation, which you, you will run into, even if you carefully decide what the AT is at the beginning, the cycle implies that we need to go back and problem solve this again. Cause maybe you got the kid two or three years after they made the decision about the device that came with the kid, but now you need to start the cycle again and go, well, it's not quite working. Something's not you know, right here, but what is falling apart? Let's problem solve this. 
And how about that um, assigning responsibility? So you had said AT is a service, and that's been one of my questions as well is, and it was my assumption that the occupational therapist is typically the related service provider that would um, be the one hands-on with assistive tech, but clearly the teachers should be informed about this as well, right? So this is the tricky thing within the IEP system, right, is... In the law, there is no one person given responsibility for assistive technology, which means it's the responsibility of the whole IEP team. But then that assumption makes a big, well, it makes a big assumption that uh, that the people know what they're, <laughs> what they're doing, doing. What they're doing in yeah. terms of AT and that they have the knowledge. And, you know, I don't want to bash the people that are out there. The reason they don't have the knowledge is they don't get it in their pre-service training. So this is a big issue that we talk about a lot in my field. There's not enough AT coursework in a pre-service, um, you know, uh, teacher program, yeah. in the speech path program, in the OT program. So they're coming into it and they have to learn it basically after they're already working. And that's who we are reaching at the University of Illinois Chicago in our AT certificate program is post-professionals. They're taking our classes as continuing education and finding out, oh, there's all this stuff that mm -hmm. I wish I had been told before that now I can understand, you know, what this means. It's fun to read the students' reactions and, you know, see how they're actually applying this now to the situations that they are encountering all the time. Right. And it is really interesting because I'm like in defense of teacher prep programs. You know, I, I was working um, as a clinical professor in the same setting. And I would always say, we don't have enough time to give yes. people what they need to know right. in the four years. We don't have enough time. And not only that, you know, teachers are just starting to grasp the whole context of everything and how to write an IEP goal. And there's just, you know, there's no yeah. way to be expert at everything. Right. So I always, you know, in my advocacy role too, when I'm talking with um, families um, or teachers, it's like, we don't assume that you should be an expert in this, which is why I think it's so important to have these conversations and point people to resources because, uh, it's not always easily accessible. So why don't you tell me a little more about the resource that you are sharing with us today, yeah, so or the process? The resource I'm sharing, which you can look up at bit.ly slash atcycle, so bit.ly slash atcycle, is basically the capacity building website that I created for my former district. And I, the, the, um, I've made a copy of it now and carry it forward at UIC. So it's... Um, coming out of real life uh, work in a district, trying to help everybody understand how AT decision-making works and give them some resources for it, but make them fast enough that they don't, you know, they don't have time to like go through a whole graduate course, although I wish they, you know, could do that would be ideal, but I wanted it to be something that first of all, they could latch onto easily. So it's based on the, a on the problem solving cycle. And then it combines um, another piece of work that's not from me, but from Johns Hopkins University, which is called the AT cycle. Um, and that simply is another circle diagram of consider AT, choose and trial AT, implement AT, and then progress monitor AT. And that last part of the cycle, the fourth part of that AT cycle from Johns Hopkins, progress monitor leads us right back into the same part of the problem solving cycle, which is progress monitor. I mean, cause that's under RTI, what you're supposed to do. Right. It's not just give the kid a tool and there you go, you're done. Let's keep monitoring how this is working. And of course, adjust the services and training as right. needed to make it uh, successful. So let me, um, I'm gonna 
talk about a scenario. I'll, I'll pitch two and you can roll with one right. or maybe both. We'll see. So um, I've seen some really, really good um, involvement in the high, at the high school level a few times where the, um, the occupational therapist did uh, an assessment and presented uh, pretty nice data, like a pretty nice baseline of how a student um, is performing. And it would be for um, kids who have issues with memory for example. Um, so often longer passages when they have to do annotations or they're not given the questions in advance. So they're reading and then have to retain or they don't retain what they read because of some decoding problem. Um, they may do some sort of an assessment on, um, you know, hearing speech to, or sorry, text to speech and reading along. Mm -hmm. um, and then in some cases I've even seen them writing that into the IEP goal of, you know, given a passage, right, right. you know, and this tool or this other accommodation, the student well, which I thought was was great. Um, the other example I can think of is like, a, I think it's snap and read that I just, I don't know much about it. And I hear them bring it up often more at the elementary level. But when I think about kids who lose papers, who have like chronic organization issues related to executive function, I'll hear people saying, well, we have snap and read. And it's like, it's, I guess you take a picture of the text and then you can annotate. Um, I'm not sure. No, actually it's uh, text to speech. Okay. Um, and it's got some other reading tools built in. It's got text leveling. So it changes the vocabulary of the text. It's got a sidebar outline tool Super that you dynamic. can use. It's got a lot of things. It's so uh, generically, we would call it a literacy suite. Okay. It's not just one feature. It's a conglomeration of features similar okay. to read and write for Google Chrome. It's got a lot of buttons at the top, highlighters, you know, vocabulary builders. It can do a lot of things. So we wouldn't want, we wouldn't expect to put a child in front of this program and say, we've downloaded on their Chromebook and they have access to snap and read and therefore they have access to it. And then the next year when we have the IEP to say, well, they aren't using assistive tech. It hasn't been useful. So between those two examples of like a speech to text program or a literacy suite, I guess, um, let's say we have that middle school or high school student um, who would be meeting with them or this is kind of the team process. So when we identify what's the problem, like I'd said, the problem yeah. is that they're maybe not retaining right. um, the text for long enough. Um, to answer the questions or complete the task after the test. test. Yeah, so uh, I want to say, first of all, that the process I'm about to describe is something that you probably don't want to wait until the actual IEP meeting to do. Mm -hmm. This is a problem-solving discussion that needs to happen beforehand so that we can discuss it at the meeting. And I don't mean that the decision for AT should be made before the IEP meeting, right. because, of course, we're making those decisions as a team together. But just like writing IEP goals and stuff, we, we draft them, we, we pass them back and forth between us and parents and everybody. So we're, we're coming up with stuff so that we can make that meeting as efficient as possible, right? We arrive with a present level we arrive with, of, you know, you know, performance. Right, or, right. You know, how we are functionally right now in order to make those decisions. So I think the, what I do in my process is, is try to get, first of all, what is the, the problem? What is the task that's difficult for the kid? And then we unpack the task from the point of view of all the kids doing that task, not from the point of view of the individual we're trying to problem solve for yet. Okay. Mm -hmm. So I want to know what this task really involves. So you were giving little hints about things that were going on, such as, you know, maybe they're not getting the notes until later or stuff like that. 
what we need to analyze is what I call task demands. And I use six categories to analyze those task demands. There's the cognitive task demands, there's physical task demands, there's sensory task demands, there's attentional task demands, there's communicative task demands, and then there's affective task demands. All those um, components are going into just about any activity we do. Um, and these are categories that I found actually in the beginning of a book by Karen Erickson and David Copenhaver. So to, what I would step back and look at is really what's going on in that classroom. Mm -hmm. And whether it's a general ed classroom or a self-contained special ed classroom, it doesn't matter what's going on in that classroom and what's being expected of the students from this activity. That's and then we walk backwards. Good question. From that, and yeah, because if you can't really answer yeah. it without having those expectations in place, because assistive technology is supposed to close the gap, right? There's a big national AT conference called Closing the Gap um, between the student's current performance and what's expected. But often we're not really defining clearly enough what's expected and then getting down to what's really happening. Now, in the case you're sort of mentioning, one of the demands would be memory. But is that really the one that the student is, you know, struggling with the most here? Let's not make an assumption right away. Let's walk through the different task demands that are applied to everybody, right? right. Given this assignment. Um, and this is where design for all universal design can come in because you might ask the teacher, can we just change this activity or give the kid a different activity and that would solve the problem? Right. I mean, so you've got to think about that approach first, but sometimes you can't because the curriculum, for example, demands a certain amount of writing and certain types of reading, etc. So I'm going to step back, do a test demand analysis. Um, and on my website, I have some templates for really common ones like reading, writing, math, organization. They're a little bit generic, but they're meant to sort of give people the idea. And then we're going to narrow it down to, okay, is it the memory test demand here that really is the, the main issue? Mm -hmm. Or is it the visual decoding test demand? Is it really reading fluency that's the issue? Um, is it comprehension of the text? Is it, you know, and then we could go through other things. And for some kids, it would be physical access to the book. Yep. For some, it might be um, visual access to the book. Um, for some, it might be attentional, right? Um, I worked with a 10th grader in high school and uh, sustained attention through the whole, you know, chapter, two, three yes. chapters of a 10th grade novel is, is a lot. Um, and then there's the affective demands, which is really, do you want to do this? <laughs> That's a little tricky thing, depending on the grade level, right? Younger kids are like, yes, yes, I want to. And older kids, eh, not so much. Well, you're hitting but pl those play into it. Yeah. And it's funny to me. I love the idea of addressing those two areas because I think they're ones where uh, there are a lot of assumptions made about kids um, in self-monitoring is another executive function. So while it's great that we can try to teach a self-monitoring strategy with the attention, trust me, we've tried mm -hmm. <laughs> a lot of different ways. Yeah, to have the technology be able to build in some of those supports. Right. right? So, so the way I word it then, we, we do this task analysis and now we're looking for technology that will reduce or remove a task demand. That is too difficult for the student. Can you give? Yeah. So we, we don't want to remove all the difficulty because right. we're trying to make a learning task here. So it needs to be a challenge for you, but it shouldn't be overly challenging. And depending on, you know, your specific impairment, if it's going to be disability related here, which is what AT is tied to, um, then we're going to look for technology that reduces or removes. And it, so sometimes it reduces. It doesn't take it away altogether. So an example of that is word prediction software. Mm -hmm. 
Um, Snap and Read has a partner software called CoWriter, and both of them from Don Johnston Company. They're not the only ones out there, by no. the way. I'm not <laughs> supporting I, I specific products. I can only products. bring up the examples I know of. So but those, it's, it's a, a very well-known one, right? right? So it, uh, it has word prediction. Word prediction, you have to enter the first few letters of the word to get it to come up. Now, they don't have to always be the right letters. Mm -hmm. You know, you could spell phone with an F at the beginning and still get it to bring up P-H-O-N-E. But you have to have some skills in order to make it work. You have to bring some skills to it. So it's a, it's a bridge between a student's skills of where they're at and the expectation of what we're trying to get to. Mm -hmm. Whereas speech recognition, so um, voice to text content or voice typing, it's called in Google, um, speech recognition completely removes that task demand. You don't have to spell anything. You just say the words. Now, of course, there's editing. There's you know making sure the words were right. And I, I do a lot of teaching on speech recognition. Um, uh, in the process of teaching that to students. But I would say speech recognition um, actually removes two task demands, the task demand of spelling and the task demand, the physical task demands of transcription. Right. Because now I don't actually even have to touch my computer or a pen or a pencil. I'm just talking to the computer. I'll have to use the computer to edit it. But well, and in that way, I had seen something that you'd, I kind of jump all over the place, so forgive me, and we're going to come back to it, but you had um, said in one place in your notes, and it makes so much sense, in that way, it is an accommodation, because it's a workaround, right? Absolutely. And it's not a modification in some cases, because if you're doing um, speech to text for science or social studies, and the skill that we're measuring is not related to the ability to write, then it's really, it's an accommodation. Right, right. it is. AT is an accommodation, that's why in most IP forms, it's on that page. Uh -huh. It's near that page. And that's where the number one place to write it into an IP is accommodation. So it's a delicate balance, uh, uh, balance between accommodation and modification here. And the way I teach it to my students is I say, what we're trying to change are the non-essential task demands, but we can't mess with the essential ones. Otherwise, okay. I'm removing the learning task from you. So for example, we can't use speech recognition for spelling tests because right. then I'm removing the essential demand of, can you spell these words? But like you just suggested, if we remove spelling as a task demand for writing your you know, response to an English paper or response to a novel that you're reading or response to math or everything else that we ask kids to write about, the essential task demand there is comprehension. Mm -hmm. um, and in terms of the writing, it's the composition of the writing. It's not the spelling. So we can remove it without changing it, which means it's not a crutch. And that's something we always have to fight against that stigma of, you know, this is cheating. This is a crutch. No, dumbing it down. Or... Dumbing it down. No, it's not. Especially if you do it through this task demand analysis, you can pinpoint exactly which task demand you are reducing or removing and which ones you're not. Okay. Okay. So once you've once you've kind of identified which task demand it is that you're trying to bridge, and then the next step was choose and trial. Choose and trial. So I do the task demand, uh, the feature matching is called the which tool is going to reduce or remove. I do that through generic features. So I'm going to say text-to-speech. I'm going to say word prediction. Mm -hmm. Then I have to pick an actual product that has it. Right. This is where people get really overwhelmed, like, oh, how could I possibly know all the technology out there? And my answer to that is you don't have to know it all out there. You just need to know what the features are. There's some great guides for that. I have one posted on my site from Georgia Project for Assistive Technology. It's this whole list of um, AT features by categorized by activity. Um, so you think of text-to-speech. Okay, I, I kind of can picture what that is, but now i got to find a product. Oh, by the way, my district subscribes to XYZ product. Right. And so right. we already have it. We don't have to go buy something. Mm -hmm. That's nice. Mm -hmm. 
And we'll start with that. That was always my take as an AT coordinator was we'll start with the one we have. Mm -hmm. And if that doesn't work, if it doesn't give us the specific data that we need to show that it works for this individual, we'll move to a different one. Is Some products, there's a lot of different options for like speech, uh, text speech and now speech to text as well, speech right. recognition. But other products, you basically, you have one or two choices and you've got to pick kind of by product. I guess that's my question is, you know, do you think it's best practice? I think with speech to text, it would depend if you can use the like universally available tool, it might yeah. be okay to write it in generically a speech to text tool. But if that's not effective and you need something more specific, and I'd imagine even the menu layout could have something to do with that. Right. Do you advise that in some cases you can write it in generically and in others you would specifically? Are you talking about documenting in the IEP? Yeah. Yeah. So the the um, compromise that I got to in my district was we would write in, I, I, I asked them to use a formula. We would write in the generic feature, so we would say text to speech, okay, and then in parentheses put currently using, ah. and then they would name the product, close parentheses for, and then we would say which specific task. Nice. So the formula is generic feature name. Mm-hmm parentheses, currently using, and that way it gives you a little wiggle room because if you switch districts and I had a different product, I could go ahead and try that other product with the student, but I would knew, I would know because if you documented as currently using Snap and Read and I have Read and Write, I'm going to know this kid doesn't know this software and I'm going to need to teach that little piece to him, right? Yeah. And, and see how or he or she does with that new tool. If they take to it readily, great, we can just switch over between the two. Um, but in other other cases, especially AAC, for example, yeah. you can't just switch no. between products. The products are very specific in terms of their layers of features, right. and so we do need to be product specific. I think. So AAC, if someone's not familiar, is augmented communication. Oh, uh, now I can't assist. Right. Help me. <laughs> augmentative <laughs> and alternative communication. Communication, and so those can be, like you said, really specific. A lot of them are now loaded on phones or iPads, and but but layers of it requires a lot. Of There's a lot of features to yeah. them yeah and they're very personalized yeah. usually hopefully well because it gets into this whole uh thing of what vocabulary set is on them and that's the part that I have a lot of thoughts on when we provide vocabulary to students as well. And I also want to say I would broadly generalize the advice that you just gave because we've also often talked about reading programs, for example, like phonics-based, you know, a phon structured phonics-based reading program currently using Wilton, Wilson, or currently right, using right, right. Martin Gillingham. Right. I think that's a really good tip. Um, okay, so you know, once you've identified the tool, um, then so now we need to do a trial, mm -hmm. and um, there are two trying to teach the student how to use the tool. Yeah, we need to teach them enough about how to use it, right, so that we can actually trial it effectively. And um, sometimes it's easy. Word prediction I can introduce in like five, ten minutes to most kids. Like my mom learned it on yeah, the phone. Yeah. Sorry, mom. <laughs> right? But she can learn it on her own. Yeah. So, so students some, gonna... some tools have a low tool demand, I would call it. Other tools have a high tool demand. So there's actually what I would call, well, anyway, there's tool demands, task demands. So um, AAC is one that has, by the way, a huge tool demand, which is why a lot of training has to go into it before we can actually get reliable data. But speech recognition, I'd say, is in the middle. Like, mm -hmm. there is some training I need to do, and I have a guide um, online as well for that, steps that you teach in order to make sure you're getting data. But let's say we teach the student. Now we need to collect some data, and we use a simple pre-post comparison, um, which is simply given the same task and the same time limits. Sometimes we do it time so we can compare apples to apples really well. How did you do without the tool? How did you do with the tool? 
that's it. Is it like a words per minute kind of thing? So it depends what your yeah. activity is, what I want to measure. So um, actually, I was just teaching, putting together this lecture in my course this week. It's what is the most meaningful outcome measure? What do we want the AT to actually change in terms of output here? So mm -hmm. if I'm giving you a keyboard instead of pen and pencil, mm -hmm. I want to see an increase in the amount of words you write. Right. So then it's simple productivity. Letters per minute divided by five is the formula that's used in the DeCoast writing protocol, which yeah. is the one of the main published assessments for writing. Um, you, but if you were doing word prediction, the main outcome you want from that is more accurate spelling. So then you just do a simple, regular kind of spelling test. I'll give you, you know, and she, she in the DeCoast writing protocol, there's a list of developmental spelling words you can use. Um, so I'm going to give you this list of 10 or 20 words without the tool and then give you the same list with the tool. And that's after you've done some initial training with the tool. Yeah. So you're measuring you before need to, without. You need to use the tool. Not just dropping the Chromebook in front of the student. I'm sorry about that. I'm going to bookmark it. Okay. So, again, you first do the training. First you do the assessment and record the data. Then you do some initial training or teaching. Yeah. And then you repeat the same task using the tool. You don't just measure before, present with the tool without training and measure because I think that I've seen that happen and that right. was an improvement on yeah. you know the very basic they don't use it. Right, right, right. So yeah, there's a training that goes into just, I call it operational competency, operational skills. Uh -huh. And there's other training that comes after we see in this little pre-post comparison trial that it looks like it's potentially effective for you. Right. But that's not the end of the story. In the problem-solving process, progress monitoring implies over time, right? Mm. Um, in the past, this used to be called extended trials in AT. I just wrap it all into the RTI kind of model of you need to do for you progress, know, monitoring. progress monitoring, four to six weeks. Let's see how it goes. And all that time, though, you're also having to do more training. So you're now trying to get not just operational yeah. skills, but functional skills. So how do you use the tool to do the task, not just how do you turn the buttons on and stuff? Right. And then so, uh, strategic skills. Do you know when to use it, when not to use it? Mm. And social skills. Can you use this in the social setting, in the real-life classroom, oh, in good. front of your peers where you're afraid you're going to look different? That's such a And I, I directly address that with kids. Yeah, that, that's huge, especially, you know, middle school and high school. Um, I know because students have told me they do not like to use their accommodations because kids don't like to feel different. Um, and so one thing I've seen be very effective is when there's some collaboration between the OT and the uh, literacy teacher. You know, in the high school level, I've even seen um, a language teacher incorporate uh, the use of different tools in the rubric, mm -hmm. not just for the student with the IEP, right, right, right. but generally, which I was like, wow, thank you. This is great. That's the best way to approach it, right? To reduce the stigma. And I think we have to acknowledge that there is a stigma attached to using assistive technology. It's created by the culture. It's not the student's fault. It's created by a lot of stuff that goes into disability that I won't go into, but I'm right. studying right now. Um, and the, the more we can mitigate it, the better. Also, I think when we look at what product we're picking, we're trying to match to something really important called the personal factors. So there's some sort of gray, mushy stuff here in terms of which tool would you feel more comfortable with? Which one would you like? And we have to go back to the student 
and figure out what works for them. Sometimes we're doing just the initial assessment to see if there's potential for this tool, like word prediction, mm -hmm. with whatever product we have. But then as we move into implementation, that's where all these other things come into play and finding out like, hmm, you'd be more comfortable using this other tool because maybe it just sort of fits your brain better <laughs> or it doesn't look as different, you know, and you would be willing to accept maybe using an iPad because it's cool rather than this other clunky thing that I had in my closet that I want to give you. Right. Um, so I have a story of a student that for three years in a row, we tried different things just for the simple task of improving his handwriting, right? Um, by reducing, removing the pencil, having a holding a pencil by just putting a keyboard in there. Mm -hmm. And he didn't want to use the clunky keyboard I gave him. And I respect the students' wishes because they have to choose to use AT. Right. So we, I wrote it up. I had the data that showed this is effective, but he's choosing not to use it. Next year, come back, case manager's like, we're still struggling with the legibility of his handwriting. I said, well, there's a story behind this. He's already chosen not to use it, but let's try again. Mm -hmm. Cycle, we're going around trying it again. So this year I said to him, I'll buy you anything. Well, okay, not anything, but I'll buy you any tool you want that would type. And we came down to an iPad mini. So I got him an iPad mini. He went through the year, he still wasn't comfortable with that. And then this is the end of eighth grade. Now he goes to ninth grade, he's in the high school, he switches, you know, placement. And he's at the high school and they all have Chromebooks. So now we have a Chromebook and I give him an individual Chromebook. And by the end of ninth grade year, I find out he's still not really interested in using it. He's getting by with the handwriting. Mm -hmm. So we take it off the IEP. And so that's a story of personal factors making a big impact on the AT decision-making. And I think that's key, especially as the kids get older, they're in high school, they have to decide what AT works for them. Well, and I think um, one of the issues, and I'm like, this is a separate a whole podcast, separate yeah. I think you know what I'm going to bring up, is that one of the issues that um, a lot of the high schools are having is the use of technology in terms of, you know, um, students not getting off their phone or what is the policy for, you know, taking away devices or are there website blockers? And so I've definitely heard from parents and teachers, we are really um, cautious about allowing extra access to technology because it has been so problematic mm -hmm. for the student. But I imagine that that is also something that would be addressed in this process. It would be, and I've had to address it, you know. Yeah. So I've gone back to those supposedly clunky keyboarding tools because they're not connected to the internet. Right. And I've they've been really successful for a couple students that I worked with who were just getting so distracted and could not resist the temptation to go online and look up stuff. Mm -hmm. um, so we went back to some of the more basic kind of tools that give you the feature we want, which is the keyboard right. and a little word processor, but don't have the internet. Mm-hmm. Or a voice recorder, like strictly, yeah, and, and then later it gets maybe plugged in, you know, to a computer and downloaded. Right. Right. So there are workarounds. I think people are really cautious about technology and for good reason, because again, I always think of that self-regulation and self-monitoring piece. That's Right. And that's part tough. of what you have to match, because what you're going back to the task demand analysis, you're going to say this activity requires of anybody doing it quite a bit of self-monitoring, attentional skills, right? Yeah. So if those are also a weakness, if we introduce this tool for this other reason, we've got to pay attention to, is it going to actually make it harder to pay attention or, you know, mm -hmm. et cetera, or be motivated. I'm just, I don't want to use this. Right. Right. So it's complex. I, I tell my students that it's really more of an art than a science, but I'm trying to get it to be a little bit more of a science too, because I think there are 
steps that we can take to make a really good decision about AT. Yeah. It's just that the decision is complex. There's a lot of factors, a lot of variables that go into it. It's not just simply the match between the technology feature and your impairment. And so, so, you know, in this process, I think that the key things that you brought up are one, that initial um, decision make or that initial baseline, really, and that initial thought process and presenting that present level and um, comparing to typical peers and all of that. Those are all things that we do in academic or in social emotional areas in advance of the IEP. And we write them up in a present level um, type of narrative before drafting a goal and then deciding with the team. So that's kind of what you're advocating for. And then, you know, with any other standard goal, we are um, determining a schedule for reporting on progress on that goal, as well as how it's going to be evaluated and who's going to do it. And those are also things that are kind of lacking. Um, I mean, to me, I think I I say whenever you can try to incorporate the assistive tech into the goal, into the goal yeah, because absolutely. that's going to help us monitor it. And I don't like making people do extra work. So it's like if you're already going to assess the writing, right. you can have a box on there. The other part with progress monitoring that I would think is important is um, identifying error patterns is something like what is the pattern of error? Where is it going wrong? So the next part of your process was, um, you know, the, the monitoring the progress, you know, as you're implementing it and the students continuing to get the training, because the other part of um, collecting data, and this applies here and it applies for behavior and anything, is we don't want to just measure, measure, measure without providing any input and without providing any feedback, right? It's not fair to just document it's still the same day after day. You mean feedback to the student or? I think to the student um, and pro- possibly to the teacher, there has to be some sort of a collaborative, right? you know, circular conversation happening. Yeah, I, I guess that's why I like the problem solving process, the generic yep. problem solving as a, as a model, because it implies to me, if something is not working, we need to problem solve this. Mm-hmm. We can't, it's just not a thing we check, you know, once a year on the IEP. And then kind of come back to and go, yeah, I guess it's not working. You know, it's right. it's a the IEP itself we know is cyclical, right? We're doing annual reviews, but I don't think it conveys to me as much as powerfully as the problem solving cycle of we are actively problem solving this, and that I think is what the AT service is about. Okay, um, because it includes training and training for the parents and training for the employer and training for the kid, obviously, and integration of services. All of those are actually spelled out in the regulations. Okay. And so that, you know, with that implementation plan, which you have listed, as well as the trained staff and parents, I want to make sure that I note that, that the the other part is to, to monitor it over time. And I think that over time piece is also important to bring up because just because something is true when a kid is in fifth grade doesn't necessarily mean that the same thing is true when oh, you know, gosh, a seventh yes, grader. Oh gosh, yes, yes. I, I do have a horror story on that one too. You know, we write it into the IEP in fifth grade. We just sort of let it slide through on that accommodation page. And then we get to 10th grade and they're going, where is this tool that we wrote into the IEP? And it's like, well, why, wait, it's not even appropriate anymore. We need to revisit this. But all the way through the last six years or whatever, nobody's been looking at why it's still on the IEP, you know? So I think this is not just a problem with AT. I think it's actually a problem of all accommodations. Yeah. All accommodations are left to the end of the IEP meeting. And most of the time we're not doing data collection on accommodations, the effectiveness accommodations. And we're letting them flow through. Right. um, Because we just sort of throw at, you know, the IP, a kind of list of generic accommodations without thinking like, is this actually working for this kid? Right. 
The one that I, and this ties to AT, the one I've seen the most problem with is test read. Reading a test to a kid is thrown on a lot, mm -hmm. regardless of whether that actually changes anything for mm -hmm. the outcome. And it will if the student's struggling with decoding, but it won't if they're struggling with just comprehension and they can read fine. But I've seen it put on both. And then when we get to high school, why aren't we using text-to-speech instead of a human to read it to them? Because that's what they're going to need to do in college and in life, you know, so we need to make that shift. Well, and that leads into, um, you, you kind of touch on the self-advocacy piece, which I really work on building my high school students toward, you know, that's part of what I do is start to have the conversations with them reflecting on a test they've taken. Was that accommodation helpful? Do you think you need that? Did you need something else? Can you um, share the quote that your colleague um, uses that you had mentioned in your notes? Oh, the, <laughs> she does a workshop um, called You Can't Take Your Case Manager With You. And it's actually based on uh, another project that I'm working on through the Great Lakes ADA Center, which is um, based at UIC. And it's called the Quality Indicators for Assistive Technology in Post-Secondary Settings. And uh, the website is qiat-ps.org. Um, and we are working on some research to revise parts of it that so that's in progress right now but you can find a self-evaluation tool on that website and nice. it's basically i i use this as a project and so did she that's what this um you can't take your case manager with you is right. about um working with students to say do you know what works for you do you know how to use it do you know how to advocate for it do you know what documentation you need when you get to college and you have to present yourself and say i need this accommodation and mm -hmm. here's why Right. And they're not going to come find you like we do in the K-12 world. They're they're going to wait for you to come to them. And we need to get our high school kids ready for that. And, you know, strangely, I think, interestingly, AT is the one thing that does go on with them. AT and other no-tech accommodations like extra time. Those are the things that follow along with them to college. And beyond. And beyond. Right? And beyond. I mean, honestly. The rest of it doesn't. All the services right. we did, all the remediation stuff, right. all the Wilson, you know, that we gave the kid, that's done with now after K-12. We need to start getting the students ready to advocate for the things that they take with them. I agree. That's kind of my primary philosophy when I'm working with kids. I call it backward planning for adulting because the goal like isn't that. to get... The GPA and the goal isn't just to get into college either. College is also just you know one more, one more thing right, right. on the path. Yeah, um, and I, I said earlier, you know, Google is like my external brain. Um, mm -hmm. So I think you know, ideally, we get we want to get kids where we're modeling that problem solving approach so that they're kind of internalizing it too. Like, is this still working? Is it efficient? Yes. yes. Where is it breaking down? So that's a pretty nice way of explaining the process. When I saw you can't take your case manager with you, I thought much more strategically in terms of writing the IEP, making sure that it's very clear, like what the process has looked like, stating that present level, stating interventions that have been tried, and and then you know maybe revisiting, but supporting with uh, the data and being specific. And this is why I think when you do an AT assessment, involving the kid in analyzing the data is really important. So I want you to know the data that we get when you try this task without the tool. And then when we try it with the tool, because I'm hoping A, it motivates you. Yes. And that B, it helps you then to say, this is why this is effective for me going forward. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. 
Well, I think we can wrap up. Um, so the main uh, takeaways, I think, are just that there is really a need for a lot more training um, in a lot of areas. Lot of areas. <laughs> but really for um, everyone on the team uh, at the IEP. Um, and the resource here that you've provided, the ET process, um, also has more information on the legal requirements down there. So that's a good place probably to start even for some people. Um, and of course, there's the program. Yeah, and I just want to say for any teachers, OTs, speech paths who are listening, um, that our assistive technology certificate program is online. So you can take it from anywhere. We have a couple of classes that require labs, um, but just three of them, I think. The rest of it's online. You can do the whole AT certificate online. So they can find it at the University of Illinois at Chicago assistive technology certificate program. Just Google that. You'll get the to the page. I would think that would be a good job, everybody, if you're looking for how to, you know, increase because technology is becoming so integral in our lives and, um, you know, not just at the school level, but again, helping in higher ed, even in secondary education. Yeah, yeah. yeah and our program doesn't just focus on K-12. Mm -hmm. Like, that's what I teach because that's what I did. But we have people, we have a clinic, actually. So we're all clinicians as well and provide services throughout the Chicago, Northern Illinois area. And so the classes focus on AT in all the different aspects, all the different areas and the lifespan. Nice, nice. Yeah, so um, I'm gonna thank Dan for coming on again. Um, I'm going to list all the links that were shared here and the resources in the show notes. And if you can't find them on the podcast, you can find them at the website, which is reorientedadvocacy.com. Thanks again. All right. Thank you. Hi, everyone. This is Casey and welcome to the first parent teacher podcast episode for the 2021 school year and what a school year it is shaping up to be. Um, I am your host. I'm Casey Lindemann. Um, this year, I am a teacher. I am going back to my roots and I'm teaching special education. Um, some of you may have heard previous episodes when I was working as a special education advocate and consultant, um, but the, the goal is still the same. I called it the Parent Teacher Podcast because I started this with the hope that it could benefit anyone who's trying to help kids um, become happy and independent adults. And today I just wanted to give you a really quick update before we all go back to school. 